0: Today on Pence Exchange, productivity and its determinants, the role of management, Welcome to Pence Exchange, the forum where we discuss everything related to the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. Today, we will be joined by Michela Giorcelli. She's an assistant professor in the economics department at the University of California, Los Angeles. Michela received her bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Torino and her PhD in economics from Stanford University. She's a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research and at the Center for Economic Policy Research. Her research focuses on economic development, the diffusion of management and technology innovations, and their impact on firm productivity. Welcome, Michaela.
1: Hi, thank you so much for the invitation. I'm very glad to be here today.
0: Economic growth is perhaps the most relevant phenomenon that economists study. An increase in economic output can arise from the expansion of inputs used in the production process or by improving the efficiency of said inputs. The former channel, however, can rapidly be exhausted, which is why modern economists are almost obsessed with starting the second. Today, Michela will talk to us about it, about the role of management and the role of managers in increasing productivity across firms and across countries. Michela, a key fact about the modern world is the existence of considerable differences in productivity across firms and countries. What would you say is the proper scope that we should focus on? The difference between firms, between countries, or between firms within countries?
1: I think it's important to focus on all the sources of differences in productivity. For instance, if we look at the country level, differences in productivity can explain a to 30% of the average uh, differences in income among uh, countries. However, we observe large and persistent spread in productivity even within uh, countries across firms uh, and more specifically across firms within sectors. For instance, uh, looking at narrowly defined US manufacturing industries such as uh, boxes or block ice, The most productive establishments produce as much as output uh, using the same amount of input as the least uh, productive establishments. These differences are even larger in developing countries. For instance, in India or in China, the differences between the most and the least productive firms uh, is, uh, uh, um, is fivefold. So, for this reason, I think that it's very important to focus on all the, uh, the different drivers uh, of firms' productivity, both at the firm level and at the country level.
0: We mostly associate productivity with technological improvements through basically tangible physical capital improvements. However, within your research, you emphasize the role of management as a neglected factor. How does management? enters into a typical production function?
1: We can think that management can affect the firm production function through two channels. The first channel goes back to the idea that management affects the productivity of the other inputs. We can think, for instance, that uh, firms with better uh, management are able to retain uh, or hire the best workers, or that good managers make fewer mistakes in the way in which they employ capital, for instance, through uh, uh, performing regular maintenance of the machines, or by investing in marketing and advertising when they sell their product or services. In this respect, We can think that management acts as a technology in the sense that it raises the productivity of a firm. However, there is also a second channel through which management can affect firm performance. In fact, the access to a specific amount or a specific type Of inputs such as labor and capital is a function of management, or to be more precise, of the managerial capital that firms have. Um, For instance, deciding in which investment project a firm should focus or which type of workers a firm uh, can hire is a function of the managerial capital per se. In the sense, we can think that access to better management is able to release some constraint that firms are facing, especially when we are talking about small and medium-sized firms or firms in developing countries in which this constraint could be particularly binding.
0: And how do we measure management overall in abstract? For example, I think one important I mean, in the popular arena, one important aspect that we see is the about, for example, the salary of the CEOs. We see that CEOs in the United States, especially their wages are quite high. Does that correspond to the ability of the CEOs to manage a company or, or is there is not any equivalence there?
1: This is a great question. And measuring management and manager ability is one of the um, biggest empirical challenges that research on this topic uh, is facing. Um, while the idea that manager, management and managers matter for firm performance goes back to the 19th century, only recently we have systematic measure about uh, 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 management across firms and countries. And this is uh, mostly due to the World uh, Management uh, uh, Survey implemented in the last 20 years uh, by uh, Professor Nick Bloom, John Bernwinen, Rafaela Sadun, Daniela Score, among uh, uh, other researchers, who developed a set of practices mostly related with uh, uh, factory operation and uh, uh, um, uh, human resources management that, that, that can be consistently measured and surveyed across the firms, uh, at, uh, as today they have uh, um, uh, surveyed um, uh, 30,000 firms across 35 different countries, and, uh, these, uh, systematic, and the analysis of this systematic data uh, collected these ways allowed uh, to make two main conclusions about managerial practices. First, the fact that the spread in managerial practices across firms is very similar, and across countries, is very similar to the spread in terms of productivity. And the second is that there is a strong positive association between the practices that firms are implementing and the productivity of the firms as well. But of course, uh, uh, so the, the goal of the World Management Survey was to look at management structure within the firm. But of course, an important measure of uh, 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 firm managerial capital is also related to the talent of the managers uh, per se. And uh, usually the way in which uh, uh, managerial ability is measured is through manager value added. So what is the value that a manager is adding to uh, a firm, both in terms of increased performance, let's think about sales, profits, productivity, but also in terms of uh, operational and financial practices that the firms can put in place. Of course, relating managerial value added to firm performance is very hard because it requires data on both the, financial, the economic and financial performance of the firms and of the managers. And so um, CEOs' compensations are kind of a shortcut to measure uh, manager uh, 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 productivity, manager uh, value added to the firms. So you're definitely right uh, in saying that uh, um, the uh, compensations of CEOs uh, has dramatically rise over the last uh, 50 years. So we're talking about managers making eight times more uh, today than what they were earning. Uh, In the 70s. But uh, I think that there is also uh, an important point here about how managers uh, are compensated uh, and not just by how much they are compensated. In the sense that when managers are compensated as a fraction of the value that they're able to add to firms. what companies can achieve is align their incentive to those of managers. In this sense, managers are aiming at increasing the size of the pie, like the, the value creation that these firms is putting on the market, and not just looking for a, a shift, a reallocation of resources within a given pie from other inputs to the managers themselves.
0: How does the firm's organizational structure can change the scope for managers to have an impact? And let me just give an example. In a very hierarchical firm, a manager's decision may have a more significant impact than a more democratic decentralized firm.
1: Yes, so definitely there is a lot of heterogeneity in uh, the uh, 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 the managerial ability and the managerial practices uh, that uh, are put in place across uh, um, different firms. Um, however, even if we control for all the potential observable differences across the firms, there is still a, a, a lot in terms of productivity that is not explained. So, even within firms that have similar hierarchical structure, uh, we can still observe a substantial spread, substantial differences in both managerial practices and productivity. But the research in uh, the last few years has shown that uh, um, there are different levels at which managers matter. On the one hand, it is important that managers act as a leader, and so they uh, focus on uh, the high uh, level kind of meetings uh, and uh, um, uh, kind of high level uh, uh, businesses within the firm. This is a recent uh, research by uh, Oriana Bandiera, Andrea Pratt, Raffaella Sadun and uh, co-authors. Uh, but on the other end, uh, uh, research has also shown uh, that uh, the uh, uh, supervisors and the middle managers are important in order to affect workers' productivity, so the output that is produced by, by the number of workers. I'm talking about uh, uh, papers by Edward Lazier, um, Catherine Cho, and co-authors. and so. Um, I think that uh, managers uh, can affect uh, firm uh, productivity and firm performance at different levels, and both the CEOs and the middle managers that could be closer to some specific uh, practice operations, uh, for instance, management of the workforce, uh, can matter uh, uh, for firm uh, productivity. Despite that, I think that uh, something that I observe in my research is that uh, however, the spread of firm practices across different establishments is overall very limited. So even if uh, we know that uh, managers and management is important to affect firm performance, it looks like that spillovers are overall very limited. There is evidence of some spillovers effect within the supply chain of firms uh, but not that much across firms uh, that are uh, uh, either um, um, uh, physically close to firms that have implemented good managerial practices, or that could be operating in the same sector. And so, by being competitors, would be uh, would also benefit by adopting similar practices.
0: In a recent working paper, a very fascinating one, let me say, you and your co-author Bolly. A study how Soviets helped jumpstart the Chinese industry through the transfer of both physical capital, but most importantly through knowledge transfer. Could you elaborate a little bit about the empirical setting and why it may relevant for this kind of research?
1: Sure. In this paper, we use evidence from a unique historical episode, which is the technology transfer sponsored by Soviet Union in China between 1950 and 1957. The initial goal of this program was to help uh, uh, China uh, to uh, develop a modern industrial system through the transfer of knowledge and technology from the Soviet Union. Uh, Specifically, the goal of this program was constructing 156 large-scale, technologically advanced Industrial facilities. And uh, uh, based on how the program was initially envisioned, each of these projects should, have, should receive two kinds of transfers from the Soviet Union. First one was a basic technology transfer. The plants built in China had the goal of reproducing, of duplicating Soviet plants and to receive technologically advanced capital from the Soviet Union. The second component was an advanced knowledge transfer in terms of sharing of know-how from Soviet Union and training of um, uh, the um, Chinese workers by Soviet experts. Through this program, China received the best technology available in Soviet Union. Specifically, some blast furnaces were installed in Chinese plants even before being used in uh, uh, in Soviet plants. And uh, the the program was considered essential for the um, Chinese industrial development. Uh, However, despite there was a description of rosy friendship between Soviet Union and China, on the ground, the program faced many idiosyncratic risks. And when in 1960, the Soviet Union uh, suddenly uh, canceled the collaboration uh, with China, some of the projects uh, that, uh, uh, that were supposed to receive uh, both the basic uh, technology transfer and the advanced knowledge transfer had received it and retain it. Some projects had only received the basic transfer, they only got the Soviet um, capital, uh, but not the training, while some other projects didn't get any uh, capital or aid from the Soviet Union, and they ended up using uh, domestic traditional technologies. I think that these uh, uh, specific uh, uh, characteristics of the program allow us to contribute to a very important question, both in economic history and in economic development, which is to what extent uh, international knowledge and technology transfer help early stage country industrialization. We all know that uh, international knowledge and technology transfer are key drivers of economic development, but there is lack of evidence of the effect of these programs on industrialization. This is due to the fact that it's hard to find firm-level data that are able to answer this question, uh, as well as a natural variation in the delivery of such programs, which is something that our setting is able to offer due to these differences in the type of transfer that projects, example very similar, ended up receiving due to these this tension, this political tensions between China and Soviet Union. The other interesting aspect is that usually the technology transfer programs uh, combine both um, uh, technology transfer and knowledge transfer. And it's very hard to disentangle the uh, effects uh, of the two, which is something that we are able to do in our setting because some projects got both the knowledge and technology transfer from Soviet Union, while some others only got the technology transfer, but not the training.
0: What type of industries these were? Steel or...?
1: They were mostly, so the projects were almost entirely focused on heavy industry. In the paper, we focus on the steel industry specifically because it's the only industry for which we were able to have a panel of plant um, uh, uh, information From 1950 to 2000. We also have data for firms in the other industries, but only in 1985 and then in more recent times since 1998.
0: So, a byproduct of your discussion maybe suggests that there is room for industrial policies that focus on technological adoption rather than on technological innovation. That's, I mean, that's the way in which I kind of read the research. Is that a correct reading?
1: Yes, I think that the main takeaway of our paper is that receiving technologically advanced uh, uh, foreign capital is able to foster firm performance, but only in the short run. Specifically, what we find is that when the life cycle of the Soviet machine comes came to an end, the performance of firms that uh, receive it and firms that ended up using Chinese domestic technology stopped being uh, uh, different. By contrast, firms that received the human capital component on top of the technology transfer were able to uh, systematically and continuously improve, even when the life cycle of Soviet capital ended. And this was made mostly through um, technological innovation even in period in which China was close to uh, uh, international trade, firms that received the uh, training from Soviet Union were able to develop better technologies that were used to replace the obsolete uh, Soviet capital. Uh, moreover, uh, only plans that receive the Soviet knowledge transfer were able to create substantial spillovers effect in both upstream downstream firms, as well as in firms in the same industry that locate close to them, which can also explain why the performance continued to improve in the long run.
0: And just to be clear, these are Soviets going to China and basically helping the Chinese know the the capital that they are using. It's not Chinese going to a Russian university and studying engineering and then returning to China.
1: In the context of this program, we are studying only the training that was provided by Soviet experts to the Chinese workers of the plants that were part of the uh, so-called 156 projects. This training was massive in the sense that involved both the managers and the engineers of the plants. The managers received uh, training uh, in terms uh, of production uh, um, uh, um, supervision, how to eliminate wasted, how, uh, for instance, in the steel industry, systematically uh, sample the steel in order to reduce mistakes and produce higher quality of steel. So definitely there was a strong focus on managerial practices. That, uh, by the way, Soviet Union had learned from the U.S. during the 30s. But at the same time, there was also uh, um, a very... Uh, um, specific training for engineers uh, on a wide range of topics uh, from physics principles to uh, how to coordinate the different machineries that were coming uh, from Soviet Union, as well as uh, a training for the high-skilled technicians to uh, um, show them how to practically use and operate these new machines. At the same time, Chinese firms uh, receive uh, uh, about 4,000 Soviet uh, designs in terms of uh, product designs and plant designs. But of course, the scope of the Sino-Soviet collaboration was well beyond the program that we are studying. And so in future research, we also want to explore what happened to the Chinese students who visited and got trained in Soviet Union during this period. Also for this type of training, when the Sino-Soviet split in 1960 ended the collaboration between two countries, these students were forced to leave uh, Soviet Union universities and then to come back to China.
0: By any chance, do you know if there were similar agreements between the Soviets and other of their allied countries? I mean, I, I know that with Cuba, the most of the agreements were most basic. I mean, it was mostly basically agreement on the commodity buying and in exchange for financial help. But... Do you know about some other examples?
1: Uh, yes, so the uh, Soviet Union definitely helped a lot of countries in the so-called um, Eastern European uh, bloc, Eastern bloc, mostly through the Molotov plan. That was the attempt from the um, uh, communist uh, uh, block of countries to mimic uh, the aid that the Marshall plan was uh, promoting in uh, Western Europe. To the best of my knowledge, this kind of aid were mostly in terms of money. There were also some exchange of capital, but um, unlikely what happened in, uh, uh, in China, it was mostly uh, up-to-date capital that was dismissed by, uh, by Soviet uh, plans. By contrast, the Soviet Union implemented a similar program to the one that was implemented in China in India. And uh, actually, uh, India was uh, uh, even the largest recipient of Soviet aid uh, than China. These aid were very similar to the one that were given to China in the sense that there were some uh, technology transfer in terms of capital, but also some uh, trade training mostly for engineers and also some exchange of students between uh, um, India and Soviet Union. These interventions were mostly focused in the steel industry and uh, uh, interestingly, India was the the only country which was able to receive simultaneously aid from both Soviet Union and uh, the United States.
0: What role do social institutions play in explaining the impact of managerial productivity. For example, is there any difference if we compare cooperation among firms in a socialist setting with cooperation among firms in a market-oriented economy?
1: So sure. We can think that uh, the incentives uh, between uh, planned economy and market economy uh, uh, are different. There was no market, uh, um, no market forces as as we uh, intend up today uh, in China uh, at, at, until at least before uh, nineteen seventy eight. Uh, however, uh, these uh, um, the plans that were part of the uh, one hundred fifty six projects were very large businesses, and they were responsible for the uh, um, for a, a large amount of uh, China production. So, for instance, uh, the ancient Steel and Iron Factory that was part of. Was, was, Treated and was part of, of this program, produced forty percent of the entire steel production of China. So, as such, managers were given more freedom than uh, uh, in other plants, especially the small plants that were strongly monitored by the government. They had some autonomy in deciding, for instance, input uh, and um, uh, uh, and labor employment, and they had more flexibility in uh, uh, allocating resources. Uh, within firms, so it's important to remember that managers were still rewarding based on uh, rewarded based on uh, the um, performance uh, and the uh, success uh, that, that they were able to reach. So we can think that uh, from their perspective, uh, maximizing uh, uh, profits. Uh, was uh, was still uh, important. Uh, another important point uh, here is that when we're thinking about the uh, heavy industry uh, um, also in market economies, uh, there could be some um, uh, um, government intervention and some regulation that make these firms a little bit different from the average firms in the economy. This is true almost everywhere from the uh, for the steel industry for instance. So I think that even if uh, the context that we're studying for sure is different from uh, um, other settings or more modern contexts, we can still learn something about manager behavior in uh, in this setting. And I also think that uh, the specific features of uh, the setting allows us to isolate the human capital component in the sense that uh, at least for the first 20 years after the program, China was a closed economy, and so the, the innovation and the technology improvements that firms were able to achieve was mostly due to the um, inputs that the, the worker of these firms were, were able to, to give. And this is something that is very hard to replicate in other settings. We can think about a lot of spillovers, exchange, information flows that, that can happen.
0: Connecting this with our prior discussion, we know that countries are not firms. The incentives, as you said, are totally different. But would you say there is any kind of room for comparison between, say, a political bureaucracy as a management of a country and the role of the management in a firm?
1: Absolutely. There is uh, uh, actually an increasing body of research that is specifically focused in measuring the uh, uh, um, ability of managers in the public sector and how these uh, uh, affect uh, the uh, performance of uh, uh, some specific public sector. There is a research by Rafael Asado Alessandra Fenizia, uh, Guo Shu, uh, among the others. And I think that all these uh, research find that managers matter a lot, even in the public sectors, and that good managers can really allow Performance both of private firms, of public firms, or public uh, industries, public services to strive. And so I think that this goes back to our initial discussion in terms of economic growth and economic development and suggests that the management of resources, even if we can think that private and public incentives could be different to some extent, is important. And if the resources are managed, Well, there is uh, more output that can be obtained with the same inputs, there could be less uh, wastes, and there could be any improvement in the product or service quality. And this is true for both the private
0: and the public sector. To finish, I would like to ask you, do you think management has uh, diminishing returns, or do you think that it's possible to always have better management?
1: I think that there are two different theories about it. Uh, One, consider, uh, as you were suggesting, that management is a capital of the firm. And like the physical capital or the human capital, it has diminishing return to scale. On the other end, uh, there is the so-called Toyota hypothesis that has been uh, brought forward since uh, the 90s by the uh, uh, Japanese uh, famous car factor, which argues that management is actually able to put the firms on a continuous uh, cycle of improvements. Because, uh, first of all, managerial practices are complementary to each other. So once I adopt a, a practice, I'm also becoming better in, in other practices or it's easier for me to adopt uh, uh, another practice. And also that if firms start systematically uh, um, uh, implementing the practices, the opportunity for improvements are cumulative. Suppose that a firm is able to understand how to fix a machinery uh, better than it used to, to do in the past, then it can systematically do that, reducing mistakes or, or worker times allocation over and over uh, time. Uh, In a a paper about the uh, training within the industry that was a training program sponsored by the US uh, during World War II, this is a joint work uh, by myself and Nicola Bianchi. We actually test these hypotheses and we find support for the Toyota hypothesis. Managerial practices are complementary and uh, it, it looks like their effect are cumulative over time. So once a firm and, and also another uh, I think interesting results that we have in our research is that these managerial practices once adopted remain within the firms even if managers lose. So it looks like that there is kind of an opportunity to build this managerial capital that is firm specific and allow firms to continue to adopt better managerial practices or remain up to date in terms of what good management is and is not something only or entirely related to the presence of specific uh, managers, but it's more about uh, the, the culture and a way that this is able to develop uh, uh,
0: within a company. Thank you, Michele. It has been a fascinating talk with you.
1: Uh, thank you so much for the invitation. It was a pleasure to be here.
0: Economists may talk about production functions and optimization processes to tell stories about how markets work. Never forget, however, that economic processes are complex phenomena and many actors play essential roles. Good management may help nations and firms catch up. On the contrary, mismanagement, either because of rent-seeking incentives or out of pure neglect, can squander any growth opportunity. Understanding what good management entails and how can firms and countries achieve it is as crucial as ever. has been Penns Exchange, Markets and Cooperation, a podcast from the Penn Initiative for the Study of Markets at the University of Pennsylvania's Economics Department. Our goal is to bring a thoughtful, fact-based and entertaining discussion on the historical experience of markets and their philosophical foundations. I am Fernando Arteaga, and I will be glad to hear from you. You can follow us on Instagram and on Twitter as at PEN underscore exchange. Stay tuned.